Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. All right, the Stack Waddy game, and I'm going to start with my category, which is now, I don't know if you noticed, but nowadays, Radio 1 DJs all have names that sound as if they came from strips in Viz. You know what I mean? They have names like Dotty, very tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> sort of very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, what an unlikely name for a DJ name this is. And I just, my, 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 um, selection comes from an earlier era where DJs had to have the most kind of vanilla names they could possibly have. Okay. So these radio one DJs, okay. From the classic era, here we go. Mike Davis, Mike White, Mark Page, Tim Smith, Mike Smith, Chris Smith. So there they are again. Mike Davis, Mike White, Mark Page, Tim Smith, Mike Smith, Chris Smith. Over to you. That is tricky. Well, Mark Page, I remember. Me, Mark Page. That was his catchphrase, wasn't it? So he's real. Mike Smith is obviously real. Tim Smith, Chris Smith, Nick Davis. Is it Nick Davis? Mike Davis. Mike Davis. Davis And Mike White. My God, that's difficult. Chris Smith sounds like it's just made up to be normal, isn't it? Tim Smith, my Davis. I'm going to go. I'm. I'm impossible. I'm going to say Nick White. I don't know why, but Nick exactly. White's the one I think is the ringer. It's actually Mike White, and you're Mike right. White. Mike it, it, White. It, it, it is. It is the ringer. You're absolutely correct. Mike. My, okay, Not but the rest question. of them, you know, you you could you could fill an entire page with Smiths who used to be on Radio One, Mike Smith, Tim Smith, uh, you know, Chris Smith, and so forth. Was that their real names? Did they change them to? No, they probably make them sound like no, they, the people. No, they were probably really called Dotty or something like that. Yeah. You know, they <laughs> changed it to something that sounded like a secret agent. You know, That's it. Something, with, something with clean lines, you know. Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. Tony Blackburn's name is not Tony Blackburn, is it? Johnny Walker's name is not John, Johnny Walker. What's uh, Tony Blackburn's name again? I can't remember. I'm trying to remember, but surely it's... I, I can't remember off the top of my head. 
Uh, I know Johnny Walker's definitely not Johnny Walker. John Peel is obviously not John, John Peel. John uh, I don't think any of those people were. You know, Mike Raven probably wasn't Mike Raven. No, he no. wouldn't be. All those things were just, that was the fashion with DJ names at the time. And it's now something different. Yeah. Anyway, over to you. Okay. Um, girl groups of the 1960s. All right. Okay. So we have six of them, and they are as follows. The Slingbacks. The Slingbacks. Ringer. Oh, no! (laughs) Ringer. Paul. Paul. Oh, no. I'm right, aren't I? I'm right. right. (laughs) You are right. Go on. Oh, why? Well, you just nobody talked about Slingbacks until about... uh, I, the first time I heard the mention of slingbacks was uh, Dame Ed Reveridge interviewing Sue Lawley, I think. <laughs> it would be in the 80s. Uh, t- sit down, take the weight off your slingbacks. It's a very good... Oh, right. uh, that's, that's his But, you know, if you look up 60s slingbacks, maybe that was an expression applied later. I, I think it was, it was a 60s I expression. It, I think no. no oh, in those course, things, so I can't. It, it, there's no point giving you the cordettes, the carefrees, the teen queens, <laughs> the blossoms and the sweet inspirations. <laughs> the slingbacks have been rumbled already. Oh, dear. That's pathetic. That's, yeah, that's tragic. That's the Stackwaddy game. A very poor start. And uh, so we move on to, because um, the sad news came in in the last sort of 24 hours, the death of Peter Green. Um which which made me get out this actually. This is um, it's my oh, Mr. Copy, Wonderful, the second Fleetwood Mac album, yeah. and it proves that the the tradition of doing kind of ludicrous album covers with Mick Fleetwood naked was was well established, wasn't it? Back in 1968 or whatever it was that this came out, um, and uh, and what I, I used to I always think of, of a, when I think of Peter Green. I think of Peter Green in what I what I what I recall as the rugby shirt years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Whenever I saw him on telly or anything, he was always wearing a rugby shirt, stripes, horizontal striped rugby shirt. And the thing about him that I think is, gets forgotten, or sticks in my memory, is they were a rock and roll band, weren't they? Fleetwood Mac. They were. They were. Yeah, a, a, shake a your money maker. Shake your money. Absolutely, they were. Doctor Brown, all yeah, that kind of thing. They were a kind of beery student Saturday night band, weren't they? That's yeah. how they that's how they became immensely popular. Uh, and the, the kind of moody side of them came out later, you know. But in those early days, it was, we'll do Elmore James and, you know, we, we could rock the house at a time when probably not a lot of people did. And uh, uh, I tell you, another thing that struck me when I got this out uh, is the, the, um, the sleeve notes are by... Not just John Peel. Do you know who assisted John Peel in writing the sleeve notes on this record? Another Radio know? 1 DJ? No. The re- it says, I don't know if you read that. You probably can't read that. It says, Ramblings by John and Biscuit Peel. Biscuit? Do you know is who Biscuit? His, presumably his cat or his dog. Hamster. Hamster, that's right, it was. Hamster. It? That's a, that's a golden moment of, of kind of rock tweeners, isn't it? You know, when people wrote sleeve notes, co-credited to their hamster. That's fantastic. And the other thing I thought about Peter Green, and then I'll hand over to you. Everybody remembers him as a great guitarist. Great singer. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic singer. singer. No, that's what I was going to say. 
I'm sorry. No, no, I, I just entirely that because I, 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 I the teenage, the mid-teenage me absolutely loved them. And uh, I love John Mayles Blues Breakers too, but there's something about John Mayles Blues Breakers that was quite... They seem to be scholars somehow. They were they were studying American the, blues. The problem with John Mayles blues, blues Breakers was John Mayle. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't sing. You couldn't warm to John Mayle. No, you couldn't know. He's unlikable and a terrible, terrible singer. But there was something about them. They were trying very hard to do the whole thing as a, as a kind of exercise in authenticity. And I didn't find John Mayles blue, Blues Breakers, as much as I enjoyed them, technically, I didn't find them remotely moving. Uh, not, no, there's no emotional connection with them. And that was totally unlike that with, with, with Fleetwood Mac. I thought Fleetwood Mac were, were, were completely different. And they had this distinctive tone and distinctive voice. And that was largely down to Peter. You know, Peter's guitar playing was so slow paced and thoughtful and considerate and kind of elegiac mm. and lyrical. Do you know what I mean? And, and so, and it wasn't about virtuosity. It no. wasn't about... It no, it wasn't, wasn't about, about how fast they did it. It was about, about aggression. <laughs> it was this beautiful, melodic... Well, it was soul, wasn't it? It was the yeah. idea that they took Need Your Love So Bad, which is a little Willie John R&B yeah. hit. Yeah. And it was a number one in Britain, wasn't it? It was certainly a very yeah, big record. Yeah, it was record. huge hit. And they just, they pretty much did it like little Willie John did it. Yeah. And he was a good enough singer to be able to do it. Yeah. He had that kind of command. And nobody made a big thing about it at the time. I think he was probably underrated as, as a singer uh, at the time and subsequently. And then, of course, when you count up all the, all those hits that came out of that really quite short period of time, you know, obviously Albatross. And, yeah. Man of the World, Green Man Alishi, and you know, and Oh Well, and then Black Magic Woman. I mean, these Fabulous. are records that have never gone away, have they? You know, these are records that pop up on movie soundtracks or yeah. commercials or whatever, absolutely to this day. All done in a very, very brief period of time because yeah. people just worked so hard in those days. And of course, the other weird thing about Fleetwood Mac, as we've as we've um, mentioned loads of times. I mean, how old, you know, when they were first in, when I would, first heard them, which would have been on John Peel's Top Gear in probably 1967 or something, they were introduced as Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. It wasn't Fleetwood Mac, it was Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, because he was the name having come out of the John Mayall band, wasn't he? Yeah. So, but, but there was a name that had three names in it, Green, Fleetwood, and Mac. And... You know, so subsequently they had three front men, Peter Green, Danny Kerwan, Jeremy Spencer. Jeremy Spencer, yeah. All of whom in varying different ways kind of walked away. You know, Jeremy Spencer most famously walked out in San Francisco. Joined the Children of God or whatever it was. In 1970. Right. Leaving the rhythm children. section who carried the whole thing, carried the flag and, and succeeded, which is astonishing. Succeeded in a way, absolutely, the in a way that and the nobody would have didn't write the songs, took it on. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. It, I, I just loved them. I thought, they, I thought yes, his, his, his voice was so distinctive and so affecting. And I, I, they were opened a whole gateway for me. They were a yeah. very big deal. And uh, I, I interviewed him for Mojo in 1994. Bit of a sad occasion because things were a bit down then. He mostly played ping pong, you know, and he told me in great detail about the, the terrible night when he went to the German commune and took all that acid and stuff. Oh, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. did go and see him in 1979. I didn't see the original Fleetwood Mac, but I saw him in 1979, around the time, I think, of the In the Skies record. 
And he was playing in a little pub in London um, with Snowy White in the band. Snowy White would play the parts for him if he didn't want to play them. And after about a quarter of an hour of him not really doing anything, I remember him stepping up to the microphone and doing Need Your Love So Bad, and playing that fabulous, fabulous guitar part, being incredibly moved. So mm. I just wish I'd seen them back in the day. Did mm. you presumably you saw them? Did you? No, I didn't. No, I just I, they were always on telly. I remember about yeah. the early days. Well, it wouldn't be whistle test. It'd be Colour Me Pop or one of those yeah, kind yeah, of forerunners. Yeah. And uh, and they were always on the John Peel show. So they, and then they were just they were always playing, weren't they? So they were yeah. all, they were always around. So yeah, and uh, you know. 73 years old, I think. I'm right. That's right, 73. Yeah. So. But again, like Sid Barrett, he just sort of disappeared, didn't he? I mean, they're very similar characters, really, both quite fragile and yeah. not quite not quite able to deal with the rigors of the music industry. And uh, you know, they just they just they just went off the off the radar completely, you know. So anyway, we'll have more about uh, Peter Green later in the podcast. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So Q magazine. Uh, closed this week very very sad very sad indeed and um but what an innings 34 years terrific i thought it was amazing actually amazing it lasted so long yeah i don't think i don't think that's sufficiently remarked on 34 years is quite a long time because the face was 24 years smash it was 28 years i mean you know a lot can go wrong with the pop culture title you know it can only remain relevant for a certain it only defines a certain moment in time and to yeah. carry on for 34 years was really impressive. I felt really sorry for... Yeah, well, well you're, very, you're very sorry. Obviously, for anybody involved, anybody who's yeah. lost their job in that or in any other, and, you know, and there are, there, it's a bloodbath in the media yeah. and elsewhere at the moment. Um, but in terms of the longevity, the thing that I couldn't help reflecting on is that, you know, if you, do, if, if you perform the usual kind of... Uh, rock and roll calculation say okay that was 34 years ago yeah if you go 30 if you take 34 years away from 1986 that takes you to the reign of king george the sixth george is still on the throne that's a long time that's a long time that's astonishing isn't it you know yeah and it's funny you know that that our kind of um it's interesting uh, what a reflection it is on on people's sense of of how long pop music's been around. I've just been looking at some old copies of Q here, actually. And um, well, I can't remember. We were talking about this the other day that everybody... Well, I've got that how, one too. How amazing it was. Just dug it out. Yeah. That, that how old the old people seemed, and they're only about 43. I think I was looking in this one, and it's got John Peel's 50th birthday party. 50th. Right, which seemed really ancient at the time. <laughs> Incredible. Really, I know. You know, and all those things have changed, you know. So so pop music careers, most pop music careers are now so long that people expect the magazines to kind of last as long as the careers. Yeah. But well, well, the careers keep going for different reasons, don't, don't they, really? They do. And... Um, I- I just oh. had a flick through uh, some of them, and I've just forgotten that kind of quizzical but affectionate tone that it had, which is really funny. You and I are remembering various headlines the other day. Um, Death, drugs and despair, the lighter side of Lou Reed. <laughs> I was just looking. R.E.M., that... oops, wrong planet. I mean, that's really good, isn't it? There's a, there's a, there's a piece here about uh, the, uh, the Who going on, st- going on tour doing Tommy. And what's the headline? Can you remember the headline? God, I can't. No, go on, okay. go on. Rock on, Tommy. Rock on, Tommy. Oh, that's great. Rock on, Tommy. Superb. 
and it's, it's just it's just permanently got a tongue jammed in the. Cheek. I know there's a great there's a great one which you and I have alluded to before of it, which doesn't really work when it's not written down. Actually, but it's the one of, uh, of Robert Plant kind of howling, sort of vocal cord shredding delivery into a microphone, and the headline is "The Horse Foreman of the Apocalypse." Well, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> It and is. Toya and Robert Fripp, do you remember that when they got together? Mrs. Mr. Chalk loves Mrs. Loves Cheese. Loves Mrs. Cheese. Uh, I think people. Well, and old Mick Hucknell of, uh, of Simply Red was always known as Amply Fed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the glory days of magazine. But it struck me. The one thing that really struck me was that by some kind of fabulous accident, I think I think Q Magazine invented that whole idea of rock nostalgia. Because up till then, broadly, the music papers had been about the pop and the rock press, been mostly about the present. Yeah. They're mostly in a rush to get to the present. And I worked at the NME at the time when the enemy had identified a few people that they considered to be part of the DNA. So that was kind of Sid Barrett, Lou yeah. Reed, and, and David Bowie or whatever. But apart from that, everybody else has been kind of bulldozed out of the way. You're old and in the way, and you've got to make way for the brave new world. Let's move over and bring in the lurkers and crispy ambulance, you know. And so they were very keen on kind of barbecuing the people in the past. And Q Magazine went back and looked at moments in, in rock history and told the story of what happened. So we did, you know, the Beatles and Apple and, uh, I don't know, Traffic and Aston Tyrold and, uh, you know what I mean, the, the, the Velvet Underground at the factory. And did them as just, uh, just reactivated that whole period of rock history just as a story. And I think we probably might have started that whole idea of... Um, you know, of, of of nostalgia, which became as, as yeah. As, I, I think it's more than just nostalgia, though. It's it's, you know, that was the the key difference, if you had to put your finger on it, between yeah. um, you know, the rest of the pop press and Q. Is what Q was interested in. Is there a good story? Yeah, is there every, a good story? Everybody and, has a story. Everybody has a story. Every musician. And and once you and and I think that's a. a, a terrific kind of reflection on the kind of people who worked on Q, that it wasn't about, oh, I like so-and-so. I think they should have six pages because I like them. Because I think they're fantastic. I think they're going to be huge. And yeah. uh, frankly, that is an enormous thing in the traditional music press. That was a huge thing. You know, the people who worked on a lot of those papers very often thought of themselves as A&R men in yeah. waiting. You know, My job is to spot the next thing. I don't think and also to take the credit for having made yeah, them. You know, absolutely. I'm the guy who gave them their break, you know. But I don't think that was ever an issue in Q at all. No, because not Q, Q is a very kind of forgiving nature that everybody has a story. Everybody, all the features can be equally interesting. And uh, Andy, <laughs> I did that thing. I, I still get I still get kind of mail about it I think quite early on. You said to me, why don't you go to Poland with Marillion? Oh yeah, <laughs> and then really, I yeah, I had no kind of interest in particular at all. But fish, larger than life, literally and metro metaphorically, and uh, and we went to Poland. Started with porridge and whiskey. I remember. And this, yeah, go on. This in the days before the before the wall came down. You know, yeah, it was it was quite hair raising. And um, there's just, I think the picture that ended up the leading the feature was him with his arm round this this kind of girl in a rather short skirt. It was perfectly innocent, but I think the headline was, Keller's Talk Costs Wives. That's right. <laughs> and you see, once you've done that, job's done. Job's done. You know, you know, Everybody's in. 
everybody's absolutely in. I can't, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think I partly I think that was a smash hits principle. Actually. Yeah, well, smash hits idea was the smash hits. You say everybody's a character. Everyone's a cartoon character actually. Yeah, yeah. And whether you like their music or not is not the important it's thing. Neither that doesn't that. matter. Yeah. Nothing to do with it. And Q used to do that. We'd find a story in absolutely anybody and just make them interesting. And as a byproduct of that, you might possibly go out and investigate their their records. You know. So you know, I think there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of uh, kind of um, you know chin stroking in the wake of the, the the closure of Q about wither the music press and oh why hasn't this gone online and you know, and I just think it's very superficial thinking all that you know because it was a product of the press of a certain kind of press you know glossy paper decent amount of color you know fairly high cover price compared to how it had been before. And it was probably of an era where if you liked Marillion or In Excess or Simply Red or Bruce Springsteen, you couldn't simply roll out of bed every morning and know more about them by just looking at your phone. Yeah, on the radio. Yeah. You had to wait. And so, you know, information travelled down these very narrow channels. And they were the music press, largely. And so, you know, people would go into newsagents. They'd know when that was coming out and when the competitors and the voxers and all those other things, they'd know when these things were coming out. And they'd look forward to when they were coming out. And they couldn't not read them. They'd feel they'd missed out on something. Completely. Where, but, you know, everything was a revelation. You'd often have a cover star with a new album and you had no idea that new album was even coming out. So it would all be, you know... Absolutely enthralling. You know, so they, you know, and the other thing that struck me, we've had this conversation a million times, but the, the magazine was obsessed with this idea of fame. And, uh, you know, up till then, you know, the broadsheet certainly had been kind of, um, had been a bit appalled and taken an attitude towards bad rock star behavior and excess and over expenditure and all that kind of thing. And Q Magazine just thought it was great. You know, Rod Stewart going out and spending ludicrous amounts and buying things he didn't really need was massive richly entertaining. Do you know what I mean? Elton yeah. John, marvellous. The more absurd you are, the more preposterous, the more we love you. Yeah, you know? yeah. And everybody came in and admitted that, you know, that fame had had this effect. It had this impact on their on their, on their lives. And some of the things they'd done have been, been uh, idiotic. But, uh, you know, we found it in intensely entertaining. Well, as did the readers, you know, in, yeah. in the same way. But, you know, you can't do it nowadays. You just can't make it like that anymore because you can't, you know, will away what people happen to know already. You know, they know as much as you do. Yeah. So if you, in those days, the publications knew stuff, the readers didn't. Yeah. Not in the case anymore. And another of the problems is, is that, again, it's a corny old point, but it's the PR industry, you know, that we, I can't believe the amount of access that we had in those days. You know? Oh, God. I mean, the idea that I was, you know, that when I interviewed Sting in 1982, and, you know, I was just given his address in Highgate by the PR, and said, go to his house and uh, you'll find Sting there. Yeah. Hanging around his house, all day, just me, Sting, no one else, no agent, no PR, nobody. No. You know, that access was absolutely incredible. And you had an opportunity to really, really build up some interesting new three-dimensional portrait of who this person is. And uh, the amount of restriction by PR made it really hard for any magazines, particularly people like Q, to sort of come up with anything, anything new and, and, and valuable. You know, the, the, mo most of the information about, about musicians now is ordained by those musicians themselves, isn't it? I did an interview recently with uh, quite a big name, 
was, it was online as these things increasingly obviously are yeah. in this particular in this particular case uh in this particular moment in fact my opening line in the interview was everything's like working in a call center nowadays isn't it because that's how it felt you know yeah yeah and we're halfway we're just talking about something and then another voice came on the line and, and he goes what i guess oh yeah i've said that <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> And I thought, no. now, I wasn't surprised that there was a PR or somebody on the line. But I was bloody surprised that they would make it plain that they were. And I was staggered that the musician wouldn't consider that really embarrassing, that they had to be fed a line. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? And, you know, my view, we've all had that issue in the past where PRs want to be in the room. And I've always said, if you're in the room, you're in the feature. Do you want to be in the feature? Is because, that your approach? Oh, that's very good. Because my, appro- my approach tended to be, but this is Elton John. He, doesn't, Elton John need doesn't, he doesn't need his hand holding, do you, Elton? Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is a man who's been going at you for 40 years, for goodness sake. You know, I find it very difficult. I'm sure Elton does too. And if you then put the ball in their court, they've got to make a decision, you know. But it's very hard, isn't it? I was trying to think of when I last read pieces in uh, about musicians that were really memorable. And a lot of the time, it's musicians who just don't care anymore. Quincy Jones in GQ, interviewed by Chris Heath. Do you remember that was about two years ago? Uh, Absolutely incredible story. Everyone he'd ever met, all the outrageous, the gangsters, the, 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 the drugs, the extraordinary things that happened in studios, the recording sessions, absolutely amazing. And he just, you know, he just, you know, felt completely uninhibited about telling anything about anybody because he's got nothing to lose from, from doing so. Mm. You know, but anybody still in the game and trying to sell records is so worried about, you know, self-positioning and, and whether or not they get something wrong that's going to live forever on the internet, some quote that they're going to be haunted by, some photograph that's, uh, you know, Yeah, well, you can't, you can't, you can't. I can't blame them for that. About you know? that, no. But you can't help thinking that, you know, when a magazine like Q goes, there's a lot of other things that go with it. You know, there's a lot of PRs and photographers and all those people who are kind of dependent on, on that structure. And... Um, do you and need I, PRs anymore? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't like to put, I'm not, I'm not here to put anybody out of a job, but I, I think the increasing amount of control by PRs has had the effect of making their clients less interesting. Yeah, they Which are. cannot be a good thing. Yeah. Cannot be why you paid a PR. You know? <laughs> no, and also their, their insistence that they simply talk about whatever it is they're promoting doesn't make any sense because, you know, you need the past to promote the present. You need to reactivate some fabulous thing that happened in their life and get to tell a new story about the part of them that then you know and are familiar with. Yeah. To be able to be, make yourself interested in whatever they're offering you now. You know? so, so by contrast, you and I were both looking at a copy of The Melody Maker from oh, yeah, this yeah, yeah. week. Yeah. This week in 1970. 1970. So 50, count of 50 top 20 years ago. And... Uh, it's it's an averagely you know, lively edition of the uh, the melody making. You know, the cover cover is about Donovan to play some festival or something. I can't remember, but and and it's got loads of features about loads of people. It introduces you to 
to this guy called Rick Wakeman that you might be hearing more I of. read that piece. It's brilliant. It says, you're, you may not have heard of him now, but you'll hear of him soon. And do you know the reason you're right. going to hear of him? <laughs> the reason you're going to hear of him is because he was classically trained and he's a brilliant musician. Well, and it struck me that that's... kind of true, really. Yeah, but so much of their values in Melody Maker at that time are about... It reminded me, it was a throwback to the old jazz era, wasn't it? That it was a magazine for musicians, written by musicians, about musicians. Yeah, and yeah. It's entirely about the music. And they have this incredible access, which, of course, is, again, links to what we were just talking about. So Chris Welsh goes on the road. In the same week, he goes to Holland, I think, with Traffic and Free, and then he goes to Germany with Led Zeppelin. There's a picture of him getting on the plane with Led Zeppelin. It's absolutely it is, the opening, The opening, or the headline, or the, the intro on the Zeppelin piece is... Zeppelin flew back to Germany at the weekend and dropped a heavy load of high explosive That's rock, right. rock and blues excitement. Yeah. Mm, not so sure about that. Yeah. But I, I tell you what struck me really fascinating. So it's 1970. And in 1970, Yes put out their second album, Time and a Word. And I think this was the week that they put it out. But Pete Banks, who was the guitar player on that record, had already left, I think, and they'd yeah. already replaced him with Steve Howe. And so they were rehearsing with Steve Howe, Howe, the new Yes, and they rehearsed, I think, at the Lyceum. And Melody Maker went along to the rehearsals. And, and you just thought, you'd read those kind of things in those days and think, that's completely unremarkable. Would anybody no, allow that to... million years. <laughs> No, in a million years. But I tell you, the, the reason is that that worked, obviously, as I was saying, is it's entirely about music. They meet all these people, but none of the headlines are about the things those people do or the events that happen on tour uh, or, or things they say that might be controversial or interesting or what happened backstage or, you know what I mean? It's all about, well, they're trying out a new form of blues or this is prog rock or this is something uh. symphonic. So, you know, the, 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 the band's completely trusted them to sit there and just write about the music and not, um, you know, not take but any it, other... But saying, I mean, another format that's in that Melody Maker from 1970 that you, you simply couldn't do nowadays is Blind Date. Oh, Blind Date's brilliant. With Ray Davis. They ran, they ran for years, which is basically, for people who've never seen it, it was a blindfold test of the latest singles. Dumb really good idea. Pop star. So you get Ray, Ray Davis in this, in this particular issue and you play him a load of records. You don't tell him who they are, who they're by. And he has to go, hmm, sounds English. Oh, it's got a flute on it. Oh, hang on. Is this traffic? You know, yeah. That kind of thing. And, uh, but it's no, interesting, but twice, twice he says, this is an English sound. He says, listen to traffic. And I think also Brian August Trinity goes, this is an English record. So obviously, he's had a really, really precise sound at that at that stage. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's the idea that that he, he, you know, well, nobody would dare say, nobody would dare do that kind of thing nowadays because you, they'd be putting their foot in it in yeah. some way. You know, you'd be by demonstrating you had not heard of whoever it was, you'd be showing how out of touch, how you out were. of touch you were. And, you know, whereas yeah, nobody was particularly bothered about that. So it's. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating contrast. It's, it's so interesting. And also the, 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 the idea that it's all about musical musical virtuosity. And, you know, there's a review by, by Richard Williams who talks about Mungo Jerry. He said, this is not uh, an album that requires analysis. Which I thought was really, really kind of brilliantly, brilliantly <laughs> damning, really. You know? yeah, yeah, It's yeah, superficial. Yeah. They haven't got to the stage where they just like the hoary old rock foot soldiers for being characters, you know, for being exactly what we're talking about with Q, actually. It's not yeah. about what people did and not about their personalities. It's entirely about the music they made. The Word Podcast. 
Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Delighted to welcome Ross Gibb and uh, John Horn as the latest additions to the ranks of our Patreon supporters. And, uh, you know, we really do value your contributions because uh, you can also, you get benefits in the shape of our our Friday night quiz um, where you have to identify the uh, the rock legend, shall we say, from a number of cryptic clues. Um, and uh, and we sort out a winner at the end of the year. It, it generally takes about 20 minutes or something on Friday evening. There's details of that there. Uh, you can also, you'll get to hear our podcast Gold, where we retrieve from the archive particular piece of podcasting history what have we got coming up next we've Mark? got one from uh, i think it's from from uh, 2006 which is really funny michael palin's diaries uh, and the unutterable word that he mentioned that morning we record on radio four there's the closure of tower records there's the you had predicted that drunk un- online purchase will become a thing and the New York Times right. appeared to have nicked your idea and turned it into a into a phenomenon called sip and click. Oh, and, uh, there's the, yeah, there's an example that a man bought a jukebox online and doesn't remember buying it. You know, we talk about John Martin's reckless stage performances, why we love world music, and how two 27-year-olds have made $860 million in 19 months by inventing and selling YouTube. Oh my god. That's good work, isn't it? Imagine that. 19 months, 860 million between That's pretty good. And so thanks to to YouTube, you know, if you're a Patreon supporter, a Patreon, uh, you could be watching this uh, as well as simply listening to it. Uh, And you could also be in the house or in the kind of metaphorical digital house when we record our next word in your ear chat with an author we did one uh, a week or so ago with graham thompson talking about his book about john martin and we had people who were there uh, while we talked to him and in a position to ask questions and so forth we've got more of those coming up uh, very soon uh we'll continue doing uh, word in the word in your attic we got more of those we've got a, two or three of those lined up over the next week uh we're also going to be doing a series of little clips based on this seems Hurrah. to be back <laughs> Soon to be best-selling book. <laughs> this is my my new book, if I may plug it. Everybody else plugs stuff. Plug away. Which is called Overpaid, Oversexed, and Over There. And it's about uh, British groups in America from 1964 to 1984. And that comes out in the middle of September. So I suppose if you, if you really wanted to order it right now, I'm simply not going to stop you. And uh, Nor should I. <laughs> nor should I, Mark. Feel free. Yeah, but if you want to know about all these things and you want to be involved and you want to get these benefits and enjoy what we like to think is some pretty interesting content, content, I hate that word, uh, please hurry along to patreon.com slash word in your ear and join the fun. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. Here's a funny thing. Record released 50 years ago, 50 years ago this week, Todd Rundgren Runt, okay? Oh, yes, 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 yes. And this is kind of before he was particularly celebrated, but it's got We Gotta Get You a Woman on it, which is a wonderful, wonderful song, which I think was a minor hit in the States. So that's 50 years ago today, which just seems like you know, there he is in his velvet trousers and so forth. Seems like Everything about it seems like so, so pleasingly retro and... Uh, and uh, like a vanished world. But you've got a record that came out 40 years ago, 40 years ago this week. 
and that's Bob Marley and the Whalers' Uprising. Isn't now, that fantastic? Now, how is it? How is it to me that this one, the Togrongrong one, seems like ancient history? Really ancient, isn't it? Whereas the Bob Marley seems like last week. Well, you could argue it's because some of the tracks on the Bob Marley are still being played all the time, aren't they? I mean, you know, you you constantly hearing, um, you know, I mean, Zion Train, Could You Be Loved, Redemption Song. I mean, they're very, they're kind of current, aren't they? Maybe it's something to do with the graphic design as well. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's the difference between 50 and 40. I know, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> no. Uh, it's just some odd thing about the way our memory works when it comes to pop. Yeah. So but Redemption Song, worth mentioning, isn't it? Don't think it's extraordinary. That was the last thing he ever recorded. Was it really? Oh, no, that was. The last track on the last record that he ever made. And it's just, something about it is absolutely phenomenal, I think. I mean, it's got that appeal of all those kind of folk chords that Bob Dylan used. So it's not, it's it's just a kind of fabulous, it's like, a, it's a folk song, really, isn't it? Yeah. And it's a song about, you know, um, slavery and, and his ancestors, you know, the pirate ships they rob are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a song about, um, you know, religious persecution, and how, how they still, will they kill our prophets, you know. Uh, how long shall they kill our prophets? Or that? And uh, you know, it's a song about his own mortality too, because he knew at that stage that he was that he was dying, didn't he? I, I mean, he he did. he'd, he'd been told that he'd had cancer, and uh, you know, and he, he wasn't going to survive it, you know. And it's an absolute, I think it's an amazing song, and also it's brilliant they put out that acoustic version, which is which is such a sort of um, it's not like a demo, don't you think? The guitar yeah, no. is slightly out of tune. You know, if you look online, you can find all sorts of band versions of it, you know, but that's the one he chose to put out. It's really affecting. Yeah, last uh, track on the last record he made. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing is, the photo on the back sleeve. This is great. There's an Adrian Boot photograph on the back right. sleeve. Yeah, yeah. Do you know where that picture was taken? No, go on. It was taken in a lift in Kensington <laughs> in May 1980. A lift? A lift. He could never get the group together. I and mean, they just happened to be getting into a lift and Adrian said, hang on, hang on. Can somebody hold the doors open? This is great. I've got all the members of Bob Marley and the Whalers in a lift. In a lift and you can't go anywhere. <laughs> exactly. Got you. Captive audience. Uh, that's been, uh, it's, it's, a real, it's a real challenge for the photographer trying to take a, a, a picture of a band that's got so many members. That, know, re that really is like herding cats, isn't it? It is. Know, it is. Trying to get them to one place. I wanted to say something about Bruce Springsteen um, has responded to lockdown by recording his own radio programmes. I've heard some of that. It's great. Really, really good. And uh, no surprise there. And, and the person who did it before him was Bob Dylan, did it for quite a few years, didn't he? The yeah, theme yeah. time radio. Theme time radio. And, and then stopped. Steve Van Zandt did something. Steve Van Zandt does it. But did who he? else? Hardly anyone. I, I suppose Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop did some of her. He's still around. Iggy Pop still does six music. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, I mean, you think about it. You think lots of these people would have been better off doing radio programs than making records. Because... <laughs> You know, what do Bruce Springsteen fans want of him? They want him. They want him, his personality, don't they? You know what I mean? Yeah. They want his tastes. They want his views on music. They want his spirit. All those things. Well, he can project that just as well by sitting at a deck playing a load of records as he can go on stage, pretty much. You know what I mean? And don't you think loads of these big rock names? I mean, how much would you have loved a Steely Dan record program. Been fantastic. Wouldn't it have been brilliant? Fantastic. They could play jazz records, played all sorts of things. They could have 
talked about what Because you've got all that music that fed into the music they made themselves. And that's Absolutely. what's so brilliant about the Bob Dylan one, is that mostly Bob Dylan plays music on theme time radio before before the point where music was changed by Bob Dylan. So it's yeah. mostly pre-1963, isn't it? It's all the things he was growing up with, all the things that fed into the songs he was writing. It's absolutely riveting. Those sweet little comments he made. I think the Bruce Springsteen's incredible. It's very warm. It's very funny. It's very knowledgeable. You get intense. It's a very intimate thing listening to it, isn't it? Well, and also, there are certain musicians who are just genuinely really good people at talking about records. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen is one. Elvis Costello is another one. Yeah, another one, yeah. Um, I don't know how many of them there are, but if the, the ones that there are ought to be doing this. Yeah. Because it's, it's just a fantastic thing to do. And, and it keeps their, keeps their brand out there. It does. It? You, you know, and uh, their fans would love it and really treasure it. There ought to be more of that kind of thing. Guy Garvey does one, does one doesn't he? Oh, yes, that's true. That's true. Jarvis Cocker. But I mean, yeah, as you say, there should be more. Yeah. So, listen, at the beginning, we were talking about uh, Peter Green, who'd passed on. And earlier today, we caught up with our old friend, musician Owen Parker, who's had dealings with Peter Green more recently. Over to him. Well, I was a big Fleetwood Mac fan, thanks to Tango in the Night. Um, and my sister bought, there was a compilation in the local Woolworths, which she thought would be all Lindsay Stevie era and discarded it because it had rubbish blues on it. <laughs> and um, so, but the 12 year old me sort of hungry for any sort of more, more things to my it tape and record collection, grabbed it and was, and learnt Man of the World and Need Your Love So Bad, etc. And then there was a BBC, was it a BBC documentary around 88? And really? Peter was on it the long fingernails at, I think, possibly his worst, where he um, was talking, he was, oh, I was feeling kind of holy, and he was talking about when he gave away his money and all of this. And this had a real effect on me as a 13, 14-year-old watching it going, so this guy just gave it all up. And now they are those sort of Hollywood people with like the video of um, uh, Big Love and all these great big Bel Air mansions and stuff. And there's this guy that apparently was, ended up tending graves you know, and doing gardening in a, in a church and all that sort of stuff. And they fast forward to 1996 and I'm 21 and I'm just going to my final term at college and I'm home and I pop into the local studio, which normally did local blues bands and uh, charity records. And the studio owner, Cat, came out and said, you can't come in, we've got Peter Green in there. And I could have, what the, with the fi fingernails and I was feeling kind of holy. And he went, look, call me in half an hour. So I went home, rushed home to my parents' house and sort of clock watched and then rang and Kat answered, go, oh, hi, Owen. Yeah, hang on, that's good timing. You play bass, don't you? And then, I don't know if it was that day or at least the next day, I'm sat opposite Peter Green playing bass and he's sort of there. He's just coming out of the wilderness. This is the first steps towards the Splinter Group. And so we just jammed through some bluesy sort of stuff and then he'd, he'd fall asleep. And so how old was he in 1996? He was 73. What year was he born? Oh, I don't know. Would have been about 45. Uh, yeah, like he's my age, like yeah. my age now. But he, had, he's, he was really sedated. But he was um, but playing, and you could tell that this music was you know, still within him. And then I just got to know him over the next seven years and ended up writing songs for him. And he ended up coming round to my, parent, my dad's house 
and being in the bedroom where I learned Need Your Love So Bad, age 13. And he'd demo these songs that I had that ended up on this Splinter Group record. And, but the really crazy thing about it was, was I got one amazing harmonica solo out of him, which just transported you back to his playing of the 60s and his heyday, that I think he had a black, he had a, a thing about guitar playing because he was so revered because my God, the humility of this beautiful human, I think he kind of went, oh, I'm really, I'm, oh, well, we won't worry about that then. There was, so, there was, it was like he had a, a, a kind of blind spot with guitar, but he played this harmonica solo once where it was just, the choice of note and the length of note and the, the economy of it and the beauty. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.